Folks, the chorus of that song is a great one to lock into your heart and to sing during the week in the shower as you're driving in the car. I know because I do it. Romans chapter 3, beginning at verse 21. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ. We thank you that so many of us can say already that this gospel has changed our lives. We pray, Lord, that we would know it better, receive it in a deeper way, and live in the light of it for your glory. Amen. It's been a couple of weeks since I preached the last sermon in this series in the opening 20 verses of Romans 3. So if you have Romans 3 open before you, please look at verse 9. Paul reaches back from verse 9 of Romans 3 into chapters 1 and 2, and he says, we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are under the power of sin. Paul has been doing just that for chapters 1 and 2 of Romans, laying a charge before Jews and Gentiles. And then in the second half of that passage, in verses 10 to 18, he uses a variety of Old Testament quotations to show us that all people are sinful in all sorts of ways. The NIV uh, title for that part of the chapter is spot on. No one is righteous. By the time we get to verses 19 to 20 of chapter 3, Paul wraps up the argument that he began way back in chapter 1. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. We said this a couple of weeks ago. Paul's using a, a particular image here, which we, we might not just spot. He has us in the courtroom. He, he's had us in the courtroom since chapter 1, verse 18. He's presented his evidence. First of all, he showed us how the Gentile world is guilty before God. Then he's shown us how God's people Israel are guilty too. So as, as the argument comes together, we see that the whole of humanity stands in the dock. The, the charges have been laid. The defendant has no more grounds for defense, nothing more to say in response to the charges brought against them. So they're expected now to shut their mouth. That's the point we've reached, Paul says. The whole world stands accused without any defense, and it's time to shut up before the righteous judge. That's the argument of Romans so far. Pretty heavy going. Hard to read, hard to, to dwell on, hard to preach. We see here that there's not a single thing that any one of us can do to make us right with God. We're all in the same boat. We're all under God's righteous wrath. The argument of Romans up to this point important though it is, is preliminary. It's really just setting the scene for what Paul really wants to share beginning now in chapter 3 verse 21. You see, Paul wants to tell us about the righteousness of God. 
God's righteousness available to all who respond in faith. Do you remember back in chapter 1, verse 17? He told us that that's what this whole letter was going to be about. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. A righteousness that's by faith from first to last. So now after setting the scene for these two chapters, showing us our desperate need of the gospel, Paul's ready, finally, to share that gospel. He gives us the main headlines in verses 21 to 26. This passage is huge. We could take three or four weeks on this and and we wouldn't exhaust it. So much so that Luther called it the chief point, the very central place of the epistle and of the whole Bible. These verses, the center point of the Bible, Luther says. So with that build up, let's get into this passage. Paul begins verse 21 with a transition. But now, he's clearly changing direction. He's making a decisive shift in his argument. For two chapters, he's been telling us about the comprehensive nature of human sinfulness. We're all sinful in all sorts of ways. All of humanity therefore stands together, condemned, helpless under the power of sin, powerless to escape God's wrath. But now, God has acted. God has intervened. God's done something to rescue us from our plight. No wonder Martin Lloyd-Jones exclaims that there are no more wonderful words in the whole of Scripture than these two words, but now. If we didn't pay attention to the whole of Paul's letter and didn't keep it open before us, and sometimes that's the danger of preaching passages one at a time, we could lose how decisive this shift is. Flick back with me for a second to chapter one. Paul begins his two-chapter indictment of all of humanity. Look at verse 18. Paul begins that section of the letter and he says, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven. Okay, so that's the start of that section, the wrath of God being revealed from heaven. And then flick back to chapter 3, verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been made known. God justifying sinful sinners through faith in Jesus Christ. We're moving from God's righteous wrath against human sin to God's righteous justification of human sinners. The shift couldn't be more decisive. Let's... Let's start to look at these verses. We're going to have to just take our time and unpack them, see what Paul's really saying here. Notice a couple of things about the righteousness of God in verse 21. It's a righteousness that's been made known apart from the law. Now, it's not that the law is not important. We'll see more of that as we move through Romans. At this point, he's talking about the Jewish law as a system. The law as the basis of the Mosaic Covenant. The the Mosaic Covenant was a temporary arrangement that God set up with his people, Israel, to help regulate their lives, to make them aware of their their sin. It was a covenant that was intended to, to rule until a new covenant would come in Christ. God's righteousness has been revealed now apart from that law, apart from that Mosaic covenant. 
if you know much about the covenant God gave through Moses, you'll know that it came with a number of identity markers, things that marked out the Jews as the people of God. So circumcision is one. The particular way in which they celebrated the Sabbath and other holy days is another. Food laws that God's people were to adhere to. We've named some of the fundamental ones. Paul's telling us that God's righteousness is now being made known apart from these Jewish identity markers. They're no longer important because the covenant on which they are based is no longer operational. It's obsolete. Christ has established a new covenant by his blood. And that's why Paul is able to invite Gentiles to respond to the gospel without first requiring them to come under Mosaic law and the Mosaic covenant and the Jewish law. So that's the first thing. The righteousness of God is apart from the law. But a second thing, still verse 21, this righteousness is one to which the law and the prophets testify. This takes a bit of getting your head around. So far, Paul's been stressing a discontinuity. Something's changed here. A discontinuity of the gospel of Jesus Christ with the Mosaic covenant and with the Jewish law. There's, there's something decisive has changed in how God deals with people. But Paul doesn't want us to miss the, the continuity, the thing that hasn't changed. While God's justifying work in Christ takes us beyond the old covenant, it doesn't contradict the Old Testament. The law and the prophets testify to this. The law and the prophets is just a simple way of talking about what we would refer to as our Old Testament. The law being the five books of Moses, the prophets referring to everything else. Paul's point, the whole Bible has invited us to anticipate this new revelation of God's righteousness. The law cannot save, but the whole Old Testament has been pointing us to one who can. Paul now begins to tell us about this righteousness of God. Verses 22 to 24. Look at that wee mini passage for me, those three verses. In the middle, we read that there is no difference between Jew and Gentile for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We can say a little bit more about that later on, but I'm actually going to mostly move around that because that's the part of our passage that we would recognize. It's a summary of what we've been looking at the last weeks. Let's focus our attention this evening on the new elements that Paul draws into his argument at this point. Verse 22, he tells us that the righteousness of God is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. We'll need to think about what Paul means by faith. Look at verse 24. Paul tells us that all who have this faith in Jesus Christ are justified freely by his grace. We'll need to think about what it means to be justified and we'll need to think about the nature of God's grace. Still verse 24, Paul tells us that those who are justified through faith are justified through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. We'll need to think about what Paul means by redemption. 
So let's think this evening about faith, about justification, about grace, and about redemption. So this righteousness of God that's being made known in the gospel is through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. We could say an awful lot about that. I just want to make one point. Paul's talking about a faith that is both exclusive and is universal at the same time. I'll need to explain those words. The righteousness of God is exclusive. It's only available through faith in Jesus Christ. There's, there's no other way for a person to experience the righteousness, the justification that God offers. No other way a person can be made right with God. But this righteousness, which is exclusive only for those who come in Christ, but it's universally available. It's available to any person who will put their faith in Jesus Christ. Jew or Gentile, male or female, slave or free, Protestant background, Catholic background, whatever. Paul will elaborate on this in his letter to the Romans as he does in his other letters. So the righteousness of God is through faith. What does this righteousness of God offer us or achieve for us? Paul tells us that we're justified freely by his grace. What does that mean? What does it mean to be justified? It doesn't mean that God makes us good. We, we would know that, I think. If you didn't know that, just hang around with us for a while and you'll know it. Many of us say we're justified and we're not good. We weren't good before we came to Christ. That wasn't the basis on which we came. Although he's working to transform us and occasionally we see wee glimpses of progress, there's a lot in us that isn't good. So it can't mean that, that God makes us good. When God justifies, it doesn't mean that he treats us as if we were righteous. I think I've sometimes heard it explained this way. It sounds a bit like we're asking God to turn a blind eye to reality, to engage in some form of legal fiction, to kid himself a little bit. I don't think so. God can't do that either. What Paul is talking about here is a legal reality of the utmost significance. Douglas Moo describes it in this way. He says, to be justified means to be acquitted by God from all the charges that could be brought against us because of our sins. Wow. If I hadn't read Romans chapter 2 and 3, I might take that lightly. After reading, sorry, Romans 1 and 2, after reading Romans 1 and 2, if somebody says, I can be acquitted, I, I, can, I can be justified before the righteous judge, I, I say, wow, isn't this gospel great news? So the gospel is a message of justification through faith. But how? On what basis can sinful sinners be justified by a righteous judge. You can't do that. A judge can't take somebody who's guilty, stand before them in the dock and say, it's all right, you're not guilty. How, how can he do that? 
Well, let's keep reading. It's by his grace, we're told. This judge gives his justifying verdict as a gift. That's, that's what grace means in the end. It's a, it's a gift. Nothing's forcing him to do it. He, he does it because he wants to. His justifying verdict, it's totally unmerited. People have done nothing and they can do nothing to earn it. Paul's going to keep spelling that out. So we're not justified on the basis of the law or through our works, but only through faith. Take a step back for a moment and let's put these two pieces together. In verse 22, we're told that righteousness is given through faith. And in verse 24, we're told that we're justified by grace. There's no contradiction here. There's a beautiful complementarity. We're justified by grace on God's part through faith on our part. Any man or woman or boy or girl is justified when they open up in faith to the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Isn't this beautiful? Isn't the gospel glorious? I've had the privilege of growing up in an era where the church has had, thankfully, a high sense of God's grace. I don't know if every era in the church was like that. I remember in the late 90s reading Philip Yancey's What's So Amazing About Grace with its invitation to move beyond the kind of legalism that sometimes inhabits our churches into a, a, a free and full experience of God's grace. Looking back on how things have developed, I wonder though if we haven't misunderstood God's grace. It's free. We, we love the fact that it's free. We love the truth that there's nothing that we can do, nothing that we have to do in order to earn God's grace. God's grace is, is free. It's a free gift to us. That's right. But it's not cheap. It's free to us because it was bought at an infinite cost by another. That's what Paul draws our attention to when he refers to the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. The basic meaning of redemption is paying a price to, to set somebody free. And whenever Paul's writing in his day, you were setting free either a prisoner of war or a slave or a condemned criminal. Paul introduces that idea of redemption here because he's saying that for a perfect God to acquit a sinner, this person who's standing in the dock before them, somebody has to pay the price. Christ's death is a payment. It's a ransom. God is paying the price for all humanity, the price that's owed for our sin. So then, we could summarize verses 22 to 24 by saying that we're justified by grace on God's part through faith on our part at a great cost. Isn't that just glorious? Isn't this the richest passage of Scripture? I was here a few weeks ago at a conference we hosted, the, the Evangelism Conference in early October, and one of the, the speakers, just in passing, pointed to this passage 
and pointed out the variety of metaphors that Paul uses to, to show us the richness of the gospel. He takes us in this passage to four locations. I haven't really talked in terms of locations. First, he takes us to the archery range. He says, verse 23, that we fall short of the glory of God. That's an archery metaphor. We've missed the mark. Then he takes us to the courtroom, verse 24, where he says that we're justified or we're acquitted. Then he takes us to the marketplace, that place where slaves are bought and sold, and he talks of our redemption, verse 24. In verse 25, he, he goes on to explain the price of our redemption, and he takes us to another location, to the temple. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood. What Paul has in mind here is the ritual that took place every year in the Day of Atonement. Only one person, the high priest, only once a year could go into the Holy of Holies. He sprinkles the blood of a sacrifice on the mercy seat. That is the lid of the Ark of the Covenant between the spread wings of the cherubim. And that act is understood to make atonement. The mercy seat for Israel was understood to be the place of atonement. Whenever Paul refers to Christ's death here as a sacrifice of atonement, he's inviting us to think of Jesus' sacrifice, his death on the cross, as the new covenant equivalent of the priest's sprinkling of the blood on the mercy seat. That was the place where God made atonement, where the people made atonement with their God. This now, the cross of Jesus Christ, is the only place where atonement can be made between sinful people and their God. Christ's blood, the price for our atonement. Isn't this gospel just glorious? Don't forget what we're talking about here. We're talking about the righteousness of God that's been made known in answer to the wrath of God on human sin. Paul draws this key section to a close in verses 25 to 26. He shows how the sacrificial death of Jesus reveals God's righteousness for the past and for the present. Look at verse 25. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. Have you ever wondered how God dealt with the sins of people before Jesus Christ? Those people were sinful. Their sins hadn't been paid for. Their sentence hadn't been served. How can a righteous judge tolerate that? How can he allow that? There are question marks over God's righteousness. Until now. until the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. Because as he dies on the cross, he takes the sins of the world, those who came before him. Those who came before him. Christ's death on the cross demonstrates that God is righteous after all. The sins of all humanity throughout history did not go unpunished. The punishment fell on Jesus. 
Just as Jesus' sacrifice atones for past sins, it also atones for present sins. Verse 26, Jesus' atoning death on the cross demonstrates God's righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. In these two verses, Paul's shown us that Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross enables God to maintain his righteous character even while he was postponing the punishment of sins in the past. That sacrificial death of Jesus preserved God's righteous character as he justifies those who are sinful and put their trust in Jesus Christ in the present. Folks, do, do you realize what a thing it is for a righteous God to look on a person like me and say, you don't have to suffer for your sins? That's what we're talking about. That's the price that Jesus Christ paid. Our closing verses of our passage bring this into a, a more pastoral place. It brings it close to home for us as we live in our church family. Look at verse 27. Remember what we've just heard, verses 21 to 26, and Paul asks, where then is boasting? After what we've read, the answer is obvious. It is excluded. If our relationship with God is by grace on God's part, through faith in our part, and it's purchased at the infinite cost of Christ's atoning blood, what room could there possibly be for any one of us to boast about anything? Whenever Paul's writing this, we get the sense that he might have the Jewish members of that church in Roman mind. They're the ones most likely to be boasting about their, their law-keeping, their moral living. But the Jews aren't the only nation ever who have boasted about religious observance. Since we're all sinful through and through, we'll all find our reasons to boast. In Paul's day, you'll remember, he often talked about the Jew, or, or the Greeks. They boasted in the wisdom that they had. Maybe in a society like ours, we boast, we Protestants boast in our correct doctrine given us in the Reformation. Respectable middle-class types, we boast our superficial virtue. I say superficial because it's only as good as it looks, isn't it? And all too many Christians boast in their version of good deeds instead of in the grace of God. R remember at this point these divisions in the church in Rome, Jews and Gentiles in the the same congregation, the Jews maybe boasting about their laws. Nothing destroys a congregation and undermines unity like boasting. This is the second time Paul's spoken into the life of this congregation. Back in chapter one, he talked about, about judging each other, or maybe that was the start of chapter two, and now he's talking about boasting. When some members of a community imagine that they are better, that they have more of Christ than others, that does great damage in a community. 
the gospel won't allow it. The gospel of faith alone takes away all grounds of boasting. The gospel of faith alone unites all those who share that faith. The remainder of verse 27 may seem confusing. Paul talks there about a law that requires faith. I think this is a play on words here. He's using the word law in that sentence to to mean like a a principle or a rule. You know, like we would talk about the laws of physics. That's what he's talking about here. In verse 27, he's contrasting the basic demands of the Mosaic law, the Mosaic covenant, which are works, with the basic demand of the new covenant and the whole Old Testament when you understand it fully, which is faith. I hope we're getting Paul's point here. Many of his fellow Jews have this narrow focus on the Mosaic law. It's the system within which their relationship to God was established. And and when you think that way, when you think that laws are what make you or keep you right with God, boasting's inevitable. You'll always have a sense of superiority over that other person who doesn't keep the laws as well as you do. It's inevitable. We might say that a person, that what a person does in obedience to the law, it becomes like their own righteousness. They don't need a righteousness from God. They're keeping the law. They're righteous. It's a self-righteousness. But Paul says that can't be. Throughout this whole section of the letter from chapter 321, he's been showing us that righteousness comes only from God that it comes apart from the law and that there really can't be any reason for anyone to boast about human achievements. In verse 28, Paul simply reiterates, we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Just to keep us crystal clear on this, Luther, the great reformer, would add the term sola, which means alone, to his Latin term fide. Salvation really is sola fide, by faith alone. No works, no matter what their nature, no matter what their motivation, can play any part in making a sinner right with God. In verses 29 to 30, Paul shows his Jewish audience what the world would be like if justification weren't by faith. He begins right where they are. The most fundamental thing that any Jew believed was that there was only one God and he was their God, Yahweh, the God of Israel. Isn't that what we've learned um, in Deuteronomy, in the Shema? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. If there's only one God, then that God must be the God of the Gentiles too. Otherwise, they would be left with no God at all. Actually, Jewish theology over the years deteriorated to just that point. While they might have allowed that God was the God of the Gentiles in some overarching way, he was their creator, Only Jews enjoyed a meaningful relationship with God. You get a flavor of this view from Exodus Rabbah. It's a later Jewish writing. 
Well, there's a quotation where God says these words, I am God over all that came into the world, but I have joined my name only with you, Israel. I'm not called the God of the idolaters, but the God of Israel. Israel wanted to make the God of Israel only the God of Israel. And while this way of thinking held sway, the only way for a Gentile to be reconciled to God was to become a law-observing Jew, to relate to God as if they were a Jew. In this paragraph, and in lots of other places in Romans, Paul makes it clear that it isn't so. The law no longer functions as a dividing wall between those who are in and those who are out. Now, anyone. Jew or Gentile is in if they're in Christ. But Paul, aren't you disrespecting the law when you talk like that? Paul defends himself against that criticism in the closing verse of our chapter. It's going to take Paul a little longer to show us completely how the, the, the faith upholds the law. In chapter 8, he'll show us that those who are in Christ walk by the Spirit. This is incredible. When we live by faith in Christ and when we walk in the Spirit, all the demands of the law are met. Christian faith doesn't push aside the demands of the law, far from it. For the first time in human history, Christian faith allows a person the opportunity to keep the law the way God intended it to be kept he's written his law now where on our hearts what a passage it's established that there's no difference between jew and gentile for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of god jews may have the law and circumcision protestants may have their doctrine good people all around us may have works of charity that they point to Members of Hamilton Road may be blessed with a rich theological heritage. All of this makes essentially no difference as we stand before a righteous and holy God. If we're to be reconciled to God, it will be only by grace on God's part, by faith on our part, purchased at the infinite cost of Christ's atoning blood. There's nothing, nothing for us to boast about. And there's everything to celebrate and to receive with joy. We're going to do that in just a moment when we come to this table. But before we do that, we're going to sing together uh, a chorus of this song, By Grace I Am Redeemed. By grace I am restored. Let's stand and sing grace together.